10, early, to being assigned to each consul. It must be observed that a regular consular army no longer consisted of Roman legions only, but, as Italy became gradually subjugated, the various states under the dominion of Rome were bound to furnish a contingent, and the number of allies usually exceeded that of the citizens. They were, however, kept perfectly distinct, both in the camp and in the battlefield. The men belonging to each legion were separated into four divisions. 1. 1,000 of the youngest and poorest were set apart to form the Velites, the light-armed troops or skirmishers of the legion. 2. 1,200 who came next in age or who were of the same age with the preceding, but more wealthy formed the Hastapi. 3. 1,200, consisting of those in the full vigor of manhood, formed the Principes. 4. 600 of the oldest and most experienced formed the Trierii. When the number of soldiers in the legion exceeded 4,000, the first three divisions were increased proportionally, but the number of the Trierii remained always the same. The Hastapi, Principes, and Trierii were each divided into ten companies, called Maniples. The Velites were not divided into companies, but were distributed equally among the Hastapi, Principes, and Trierii. Each Maniple was subdivided into two centuries, commanded by a centurion. Each legion had six superior officers, called Tribuni Militum. The legion was also divided into ten cohorts, and as the cohorts were all equal to each other, the strength of the cohort varied from time to time with the strength of the legion, and thus at different periods ranged between the limits of 300 and 600. 300 horse soldiers were apportioned to each legion, divided into ten troops to out of which three officers were chosen named Decoriones. The infantry furnished by the Socii was for the most part equal in number to the Roman legions, the cavalry twice or thrice as numerous, and the whole were divided equally between the two consular armies. Each consul named twelve superior officers, who were termed prefecti socirum, and corresponded by the legionary tribunes. Fourth period, from the times of the Gracchi until the downfall of the Republic. After the times of the Gracchi the following changes in military affairs may be noticed. In the first consulship of Marius the legions were thrown open to citizens of all grades, without distinction of fortune. The whole of the legionaries were armed and equipped in the same manner, all being now furnished with the pilum. The legionaries, when in battle order, were no longer arranged in three lines, each consisting of ten maniples with an open space between each maniple, but in two lines, each consisting of five cohorts, with a space between each cohort. The younger soldiers were no longer placed in the front, but in reserve, the van being composed of veterans. As a necessary result of the above arrangements, the distinction between Hastapi, Principes, and Trierii ceased to exist. The Velites disappeared. The skirmishers, included under the general term Levi's Armatura, consisted for the most part of foreign mercenaries possessing peculiar skill in the use of some national weapon, such as the Baleoric Slingers, the Cretan Archer Sagittarii, and the Moorish Dardman, when operations requiring great activity were undertaken, such as could not be performed by mere skirmishers, detachments of legionaries were lightly equipped, and marched without baggage for these special services, the cavalry of the legion underwent a change in every respect analogous to that which took place with regard to the light-armed troops, the Roman equites attached to the army were very few in number, and were chiefly employed as aides to camp and on confidential missions, the bulk of the cavalry consisted of foreigners, and hence we find the legions and the cavalry spoken of as completely distinct from each other. After the termination of the social war, when most of the inhabitants of Italy became Roman citizens, 
the ancient distinction between the legions and the socii disappeared, and all who had served as socii became incorporated with the legions. In the course of the history the triumphs granted to victorious generals have been frequently mentioned, and therefore a brief description of them may appropriately close this sketch of the Roman army. A triumph was a solemn procession, in which a victorious general entered the city in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was preceded by the captives and spoils taken in war, was followed by his troops, and, after passing in state along the Via Sacra, ascended the capital to offer sacrifice in the Temple of Jupiter. From the beginning of the Republic down to the extinction of liberty a triumph was recognized as the summit of military glory, and was the cherished object of ambition to every Roman general. After any decisive battle had been won, or a province subdued by a series of successful operations, the general forwarded to the Senate a laurel wreath dispatch containing an account of his exploits. If the intelligence proved satisfactory the Senate decreed a public thanksgiving. After the war was concluded, the general, with his army, repaired to Rome, or ordered his army to meet him there on a given day, but did not enter the city. A meeting of the Senate was held without the walls, that he might have an opportunity of urging his pretensions in person, and these were then scrutinized and discussed with the most jealous care. If the Senate gave their consent, they at the same time voted a sum of money toward defraying the necessary expenses, and one of the tribunes applied for a plebiscitum to permit the Imperator to retain his imperium on the day when he entered the city. This last form could not be dispensed with, because the imperium conferred by the Comitia did not include the city itself, and accordingly the military power of the general ceased as soon as he re-entered the gates, unless the general law had been previously suspended by a special enactment. Footnote 41, this was done by the well-known formula, Dendiant, or, Dent Operum Consuls, Northeast Quid Race Public Adatriment Capiat. Footnote 43, it is not easy to define with accuracy the respective duties of the censors and ediles in relation to the public buildings, but it may be stated in general that the superintendence of the ediles was more in the way of police, while that of the censors had reference to all financial matters. Footnote 44, a senatus consultum was so called because the consul who brought a matter before the senate was said senatum consulari. Footnote 46, the technical word for this appeal was provocatio. The word appellatio signified an appeal from one magistrate to another. Footnote 51, hence the frequent occurrence of such phrases as expeditae, expeditae milites, expediti cohorts, and even expediti legions. Chapter XVII. Internal history of Rome during the Macedonian and Syrian wars. Cato and Scipio. The conquests of the Romans in the East had exercised a most pernicious influence upon the national character. They were originally a hardy, industrious, and religious race, distinguished by unbending integrity and love of order, they lived with great frugality upon their small farms, which they cultivated with their own hands, but they were stern and somewhat cruel, and cared little or nothing for literature and the arts, upon such a people the sudden acquisition of wealth produced its natural effects, they employed it in the gratification of their appetites, and in coarse sensual pleasures, some of the Roman nobles, such as Scipio Africanus, Flamininus the conqueror of Philip, and others, acquired a love for Greek literature and art, but the great mass of the nation imitated only the vices of the Greeks. Cooks, who had formerly been the cheapest kind of slaves at Rome, now became the most valuable. A love of luxury and a general depravity gradually spread through all classes of society. A striking instance of the growing licentiousness of the times was brought to light in B.C. 186. 
it was discovered that the worship of Bacchus had been introduced from southern Italy into Rome and other towns, and that secret societies were formed, which, under the cloak of this worship, indulged in the most abominable vices. A stringent inquiry was made into these practices, the most guilty were put to death, and a decree of the Senate was passed, forbidding the worship of Bacchus in Rome and throughout Italy. Another circumstance will illustrate the manners of the times. L. Flamininus, the brother of the conqueror of Philip, and consul in B.C. 192, took with him into Cisalpine Gaul a beautiful Carthaginian boy, to whom he was attached. The youth complained of leaving Rome just before the exhibition of the games of the gladiators. Shortly after reaching the province, when Flamininus was feasting with his favorite, a boy in chief came into the consul's tent to implore his protection. Flamininus seized this opportunity to please the boy, and, telling him that he should be rewarded for not seeing the gladiators, he ordered an attendant to stab the Gaul, that his favorite might enjoy the dying agonies of the man. The increasing love of gladiatorial combats was another indication of the national character. These brutalizing sports are said to have taken their origin from the Etruscans, who were accustomed to kill slaves and captives at the funerals of their relatives. They were first exhibited at Rome in the beginning of the First Punic War B.C. 264, at first confined to funerals. They were afterward exhibited by the Aediles at the public games, with the view of pleasing the people. The passion for this brutalizing amusement rose to a great height toward the end of the Republic and under the Empire. Great pains were taken with the training of gladiators, who were divided into different classes according to their arms and modes of fighting. Among many other important consequences of these foreign wars, to exercise an especial influence upon the future fate of the Republic, the nobles became enormously rich, and the peasant proprietors almost entirely disappeared. The wealthy nobles now combined together to keep in their own families the public offices of the state, which afforded the means of making such enormous fortunes. Thus a new nobility was formed, resting on wealth, and composed alike of plebeian and patrician families. Everyone whose ancestry had not held any of the cruel magistracies was called a new man, and was branded as an upstart. It became more and more difficult for a new man to arise to office, and the nobles were thus almost an hereditary aristocracy in the exclusive possession of the government. The wealth they had acquired in foreign commands enabled them not only to incur a prodigious expense in the celebration of the public games in their aedileship, with the view of gaining the votes of the people at future elections but also to spend large sums of money in the actual purchase of votes. The first law against bribery was passed in B.C. 181, a sure proof of the growth of the practice. The decay of the peasant proprietors was an inevitable consequence of these frequent and long protracted wars. In the earlier times the citizen soldier, after a few weeks' campaign, returned home to cultivate his land, but this became impossible when wars were carried on out of Italy. Moreover, the soldier, easily obtaining abundance of booty, found life in the camp more pleasant than the cultivation of the ground. He was thus as ready to sell his land as the nobles were anxious to buy it, but money acquired by plunder is soon squandered. The soldier, returning to Rome, swelled the ranks of the poor, and thus, while the nobles became richer and richer, the lower classes became poorer and poorer. In consequence of the institution of slavery there was little or no demand for free labor and as prisoners taken in war were sold as slaves, the slave market was always well supplied. The estates of the wealthy were cultivated by large gangs of slaves, and even the mechanical arts, which give employment to such large numbers in the modern towns of Europe, were practiced by slaves, whom their masters had trained for the purpose. 
the poor at Rome were thus left almost without resources, their votes in the popular assembly were nearly the only thing they could turn into money, and it is therefore not surprising that they were ready to sell them to the highest bidder. Many distinguished men saw with deep regret the old Roman virtues disappearing, and strove vigorously against these corruptions of the national character. Of this party the most conspicuous member was Amporcius Cato, who may be taken as a type of the old Roman character. He was born at Tusculum in B.C. 234, when a young man, the death of his father put him in possession of a small hereditary estate in the Sabine territory, at a distance from his native town. It was here that he passed the greater part of his boyhood, hardening his body by healthful exercise, and superintending and sharing the operations of the farm. Near his estate was an humble cottage, which had been tenant, after three triumphs, by its owner and Curis Dentatus, whose warlike exploits and simple character were often talked of with admiration in the neighborhood. The ardor of the youthful Cato was kindled. He resolved to imitate the character, and hoped to rival the glory, of Dentatus. Opportunity was not wanting. He took his first military lessons in the campaigns against Hannibal, and gained the favor and friendship of Fabius Maximus. He was also patronized by Elvarius Flaccus, a Roman noble in his neighborhood, and a warm supporter of the old Roman manners, who had observed Cato's eloquence, as well as his martial spirit. Encouraged by Fabius and Flaccus, Cato became a candidate for office, and was elected quaestor in B.C. 204. He followed Piscipio Africanus to Sicily, but there was not that cordiality of company operation between Cato and Scipio which ought to subsist between a quaestor and his proconsul. Fabius had opposed the permission given to Scipio to carry the attack into the enemy's home, and Cato, whose appointment was intended to operate as a check upon Scipio, adopted the views of his friend. Cato was praetor in Sardinia in B.C. 198 where he took the earliest opportunity of illustrating his principles by his practice. He diminished official expenses, walked his circuits with a single attendant, administered justice with strict impartiality, and restrained usury with unsparing severity. He had now established a reputation for pure morality and strict old-fashioned virtue. He was looked upon as the living type and representative of the ideal ancient Roman. To the advancement of such a man opposition was vain. In B.C. 195 he was elected consul with his old friend and patron Elvarius Flaccus. During his consulship a strange scene took place peculiarly illustrative of Roman manners. In B.C. 215, at the height of the Punic War, a law had been passed, proposed by the Tribune Apius, that no woman should possess more than half an ounce of gold, nor wear a garment of divers colors, nor drive a carriage with horses within a mile of the city except for the purpose of attending the public celebration of religious rites. Now that Hannibal was conquered, and Rome abounded with Carthaginian wealth, there being no longer any necessity for women to contribute toward the exigencies of an impoverished treasury the savings spared from their ornaments and pleasures, two tribunes thought it time to propose the abolition of the Oppian law, but they were opposed by two of their colleagues. The most important affairs of state excited far less interest and zeal than this singular contest. The matrons blockaded every avenue to the forum, and intercepted their husbands as they approached, beseeching them to restore the ancient ornaments of the Roman matrons. Even Flaccus wavered, but his colleague Cato was inexorable. Finally, the women carried the day. Worn out by their importunity, the two tribunes withdrew their opposition, and the hated law was abolished by the suffrage of all the tribes. Cato's campaign in Spain during his consulship, which added greatly to his military reputation, 
has been already related. He afterward served in Greece under Anglabriel, where he distinguished himself at the Battle of Thermopylae fought against Antiochus B.C. 191. The victory of Zama had made Thesepio Africanus the first man in the Republic, and for a time silenced all his enemies. But the party of Fabius still cherished their old animosity against him, and Cato inherited the hatred of his friend and patron. After the return of Thesepio and his brother Lucius from the war against Antiochus, they were charged with having been bribed to let off the Syrian monarch too leniently, and of having appropriated to their own use a portion of the money which had been paid by Antiochus to the Roman state. The first blow was directed against Lucius Scipio, at the instigation of Cato. The two petty tribunes of the people required Lucius to render an account of all sums of money which he had received from Antiochus. Lucius accordingly prepared his accounts, but, as he was in the act of delivering them up, the proud conqueror of Hannibal indignantly snatched them out of his hands, and tore them in pieces, saying, it was unworthy to call to account for a few thousands a man who had paid millions into the treasury, but this haughty conduct appears to have produced an unfavorable impression, and his brother, when brought to trial in the course of the tame year, was declared guilty, and sentenced to pay a heavy fine. The tribune ordered him to be dragged to prison, and there detained till the money was paid, whereupon Africanus, still more enraged at this fresh insult to his family, and setting himself above the laws, rescued his brother from the hands of the tribune's officer. The contest would probably have been attended with fatal results had not Tib, Gracchus, the father of the celebrated tribune, and then tribune himself, had the prudence, although he disapproved of the violent conduct of Africanus to release his brother Lucius from the sentence of imprisonment. The successful issue of the prosecution of Lucius emboldened his enemies to bring the great Africanus himself before the people. His accuser was the tribune Ebnavius. When the trial came on, Scipio did not condescend to say a single word in refutation of the charges that had been brought against him, but descended long and eloquently upon the signal services he had rendered to the commonwealth, having spoken till nightfall. The trial was adjourned till the following day, early next morning, when the tribunes had taken their seats on the rostra, and Africanus was summoned. He proudly reminded the people that this was the anniversary of the day on which he had defeated Hannibal at Zema, and called upon them to neglect all disputes and lawsuits, and follow him to the capital, there to return thanks to the immortal gods, and pray that they would grant the Roman state other citizens like himself. Scipio struck a chord which vibrated in every heart, their veneration for the hero returned, and he was followed by such crowds to the capital that the tribunes were left alone in the rostra. Having thus set all the laws at defiance, Scipio immediately quitted Rome, and retired to his country seat at Liternum. The tribunes wished to renew the prosecution, but Gracchus wisely persuaded them to let it drop. Scipio never returned to Rome, he would neither submit to the laws, nor aspire to the sovereignty of the state, and he therefore resolved to expatriate himself forever. He passed his remaining days in the cultivation of his estate at Liternum, and at his death is said to have requested that his body might be buried there, and not in his ungrateful country B.C. 183. Hannibal perished in the same year as his great opponent. Scipio was the only member of the Senate who opposed the unworthy persecution which the Romans employed against their once dreaded foe. Each of these great men, possessing true nobility of soul, could appreciate the other's merits. A story is told that Scipio was one of the ambassadors sent to Antiochus at Ephesus, at whose court Hannibal was then residing, and that he there had an interview with the great Carthaginian, who declared him the greatest general that ever lived, 
the compliment was paid in a manner the most flattering to Scipio. The latter had asked, who was the greatest general? Alexander the Great, was Hannibal's reply. Who was the second? Pyrrhus. Who was the third? Myself, replied the Carthaginian. What would you have said, then, if you had conquered me? Asked Scipio, in astonishment. I should then have placed myself above Alexander, Pyrrhus, and all other generals. After the defeat of Antiochus, Hannibal, as we have already seen, took up his abode with Prusias, king of Bithynia, and there found for some years a secure asylum. But the Romans could not be at ease so long as Hannibal lived, and T. Flamininus was at length dispatched to the court of Prusias to demand the surrender of the fugitive. The Bithynian king was unable to resist, but Hannibal, who had long been in expectation of such an event, took poison to avoid falling into the hands of his implacable foes. We now return to Cato, whose censorship B.C. 184 was a great epoch in his life. He applied himself strenuously to the duties of his office, regardless of the enemies he was making. He repaired the water courses, gave the reservoirs, cleansed the drains, raised the rents paid by the public canine for farming the taxes, and diminished the contract prices dispersed by the state to the undertakers of public works. There can be no doubt that great abuses existed in the management of the public finances, with which nothing but the undaunted courage and administrative abilities of Cato could have successfully grappled. He was disturbing a nest of hornets, and all his future life was troubled by their bows, and their attempts to sting. But, though he was accused no fewer than forty-four times during the course of his life, it was only once that his enemies prevailed against him. His enactments against luxury were severe and stringent. He levied a heavy tax upon expensive slaves and costly furniture and dress. He justly degraded from the Senate El Flamininus for the act of abominable cruelty in Gaul which has been already narrated. The strong national prejudices of Cato appear to have diminished in force as he grew older and wiser. He applied himself in old age to the study of Greek literature, with which in youth he had no acquaintance. Although he was not ignorant of the Greek language, himself an historian and orator, the excellences of Demosthenes and Thucydides made a deep impression upon his kindred mind, but throughout life his conduct was guided by prejudices against classes and nations whose influence he deemed to be hostile to the simplicity of the old Roman character. When Eumenes, king of Pergamus, visited Rome after the war with Antiochus, and was received with honor by the Senate, and splendidly entertained by the nobles, Cato was indignant at the respect paid to the monarch, refused to go near him and declared that kings were naturally carnivorous animals. He had an antipathy to physicians, because they were mostly Greeks, and therefore unfit to be trusted with Roman lives. He loudly cautioned his eldest son against them, and dispensed with their attendance. When Athens sent three celebrated philosophers, Carnades, Diogenes, and Critolaus, to Rome, in order to negotiate a remission of the 500 talents which the Athenians had been awarded to pay to the Europeans, Carnades excited great attention by his philosophical conversation and lectures, in which he preached the pernicious doctrine of an expediency distinct from justice, which he illustrated by the example of Rome herself, if Rome were stripped of all that she did not justly gain, the Romans might go back to their huts. Cato, offended with his principles, and jealous of the attention paid to the Greek, gave advice which the Senate followed, let these deputies have an answer, and a polite dismissal as soon as possible. Cato was an unfeeling and cruel master. His conduct toward his slaves was detestable. The law held them to be mere chattels, and he treated them as such, without any regard to the rights of humanity. 
After supper he often severely chastised them, fong in hand, for trifling acts of negligence, and sometimes condemned them to death. When they were worn out, or useless, he sold them, or turned them out of doors. He treated the lower animals no better. His war horse, which bore him through his campaign in Spain, he sold before he left the country, that the state might not be charged with the expenses of its transport. As years advanced he sought gain with increasing eagerness, but never attempted to profit by the misuse of his public functions. He accepted no bribes, he reserved no booty to his own use, but he became a speculator, not only in slaves, but in buildings, artificial waters, and pleasure grounds. In this, as in other points, he was a representative of the old Romans, who were a money-getting and money-loving people. Footnote 54, the nobles were distinguished from the ignobiles. The outward distinction of the former was the Jews in a ginoom. These imagines were figures with painted masks of wax, representing the ancestors who had held any of the cruel magistracies. They were placed in cases in the atrium or reception hall of the house, and were carried in the funeral procession of a member of the family. Anyone who first obtained a cruel magistracy became the founder of the nobility of his family. Such a person was himself neither a nobilize nor an ignobilize. He was termed a novus homo or a new man. Footnote 55, the Latin word for bribery is ambitious, literally canvassing. It must not be confounded with repetundi, the offense of extortion or pecuniary corruption committed by magistrates in the provinces or at Rome. Chapter XIX, the Third Macedonian, Achaean, and Third Punic Wars, B.C. 179-146. In B.C. 179 Philip died, and was succeeded by his son Perseus the last monarch of Macedonia. The latter years of the reign of Philip had been spent in preparations for a renewal of the war, which he foresaw to be inevitable, and when Perseus ascended the throne, he found himself amply provided with men and money for the impending contest. But, whether from a sincere desire of peace, or from irresolution of character, he sought to avert an open rupture as long as possible and one of the first acts of his reign was to obtain from the Romans a renewal of the treaty which they had concluded with his father. It is probable that neither party was sincere in the conclusion of this peace. At least neither could entertain any hope of its duration, yet a period of seven years elapsed before the mutual enmity of the two powers broke out into open hostilities. Meanwhile, Perseus was not idle, he secured the attachment of his subjects by equitable and popular measures and formed alliances not only with the Greeks and the Asiatic princes, but also with the Thracian, Illyrian, and Celtic tribes which surrounded his dominions. The Romans naturally viewed these proceedings with jealousy and suspicion, and at length, in 172, Perseus was formally accused before the Roman Senate by Eumenes, king of Pergamus, in person, of entertaining hostile designs against the Roman power, the murder of Eumenes near Delphi on his return homeward, of which Perseus was suspected, aggravated the feeling against him at Rome, and in the following year war was declared, Perseus was at the head of a numerous and well-appointed army, but of all his allies, only Codis, king of the Andresians, ventured to support him against so formidable a foe, yet the war was protracted three years without any decisive result, nay, the balance of success seemed on the whole to incline in favor of Perseus, and many states, which before were wavering, now showed a disposition to join his cause, but his ill-timed parsimony restrained him from taking advantage of their offers, and in B.C. 168 the arrival of the consul Elinilis Paus completely changed the aspect of affairs, 
Perseus was driven from a strong position which he had taken up on the banks of the Anicus, forced to a retreat to Pigna, and, finally, to accept an engagement near that town. At first the serried ranks of the phalanx seemed to promise superiority, but its order having been broken by the inequalities of the ground, the Roman legionaries penetrated the disordered mass, and committed fearful carnage, to the extent, it is said, of 20.000 men. Perseus fled first to Pella, then to Amphipolis, and finally to the sanctuary of the sacred island of Samothrace, but was at length obliged to surrender himself to a Roman squadron. He was treated with courtesy, but was reserved to adorn the triumph of his conqueror. Such was the end of the Macedonian Empire. The Senate decreed that Macedonia should be divided into four districts, each under the jurisdiction of an oligarchical council. Before leaving Greece, Pons was commanded by the Senate to inflict a terrible punishment upon the Epirotes, because they had favored Perseus, having placed garrisons in the seventy towns of Epirus. He raised them all to the ground in one day and carried away 150.000 inhabitants as slaves. Epirus never recovered from this blow. In the time of Augustus the country was still a scene of desolation, and the inhabitants had only ruins and villages to dwell in. Pons arrived in Italy toward the close of B.C. 167. The booty which he brought with him from Macedonia, and which he paid into the Roman treasury, was of enormous value, and his triumph, which lasted three days was the most splendid that Rome had yet seen. Before his triumphal car walked the captive monarch of Macedonia, and behind it, on horseback, were his two eldest sons, Cuthabius Maximus, and Pisipio Africanus the younger, both of whom had been adopted into other families, but his glory was darkened by the death of his two younger sons, one dying a few days before, and the other a few days after his triumph. After the triumph Perseus was thrown into a dungeon, in consequence of the intercession of Pons, he was released, and permitted to end his days in an honorable captivity at Pella. His son Alexander learned the Latin language, and became a public clerk at Rome. The fall of the Macedonian monarchy made Rome the real mistress of the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. The most haughty monarchs trembled before the Republic. Antiochus Epiphanes had invaded Egypt, and was marching upon Alexandria, when he was met by three Roman commissioners who presented him with a decree of the Senate, commanding him to abstain from hostilities against Egypt. The king, having read the decree, promised to take it into consideration with his friends, whereupon Papiis, one of the Roman commissioners, stepping forward, 